to see you here on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning. I am normally at this time of the service, I'm downstairs with, uh, in the youth room with the youth group, uh, and that's one of my responsibilities here is I, I walk with the youth group as we learn and explore what it means to be a follower of Christ here in Seattle. And then as well, I help out with uh, Dinner Church, which uh, there's a number of you here who also help out with that, and that's on Monday nights at Magnuson Park uh, from 5 to 6.30, where we sit around a table with uh, people in that neighborhood, and we just celebrate who Jesus is, and we love each other and God by eating and talking and living life alongside each other. So just a quick uh, plug-in for that. If, uh, if you're interested, please come to Magnuson Park, 5 to 6.30 on Mondays. We'd love to have more people sitting around the table with us um, and growing together as we um, learn more about each other. Right now, we're in a series of Advent, and we've been exploring Advent by, uh, well, first of all, you see that we're in a circle or, I guess, a square. Uh, Normally, this isn't how we normally practice our services, but in Advent, we're trying something different and new. And then we've been going through this series uh, called Practicing the Faith. Uh, And in this series, we've been exploring different spiritual practices that have shaped the body of Christ historically throughout the centuries and millennium. And uh, that are, and we've been exploring two, and typically they're sort of opposites, but whenever they come together, they form a whole, I would say, spiritual experience. And we first talked about prayer and action. Greg talked about that. And then last week, Heather talked about community and solitude. Today, we're talking about feasting and fasting, or fasting and feasting. And if you're like me, then one of those is significantly more difficult than the other. And don't worry, you're actually not alone in America or in Western culture. Uh, Historically and globally, uh, Christians have always fasted. That's been a huge part of the rhythms of life. But lately, that's really been lost. Uh, Most people don't fast that much anymore. And I think there's a few reasons for it. Uh, One of them is back in the day, uh, I think we fasted for the wrong reasons. It was sort of like, oh, anything you desire is evil and bad, and your body is evil, so you should punish yourself. That way you can glorify God by not eating. And that's really not the point of fasting. And then people reacted to that, and now we live in a culture that's it's a consumer culture. Consumerism is sort of the, the game of the day. That's what everyone does. And uh, we're like, anything you desire, anything you want, you, you do it. So uh, the idea of abstaining from food is just sort of crazy and insane. Who would do that? Who would do that? But hopefully after this uh, sermon, you'll see some, some reasons for entering into that time of fasting. Actually, I, I lived in Africa for a couple years before coming here to Seattle after college. And uh, I, when I first got there, I was living in a country in East Africa that was a closed country. So it was like 100% Muslim. And there was an underground church there that was actually comprised of people from the neighboring country. And there was a gentleman there who became a mentor of mine. His name was Girma. And he, I mean, if there's a couple people who have influenced me more uh, than anyone else in my life, he's one of them. He's had a profound impact on who I am today. And he's really honest and direct. And whenever he found out that I didn't practice fasting regularly, he was just like, got in my face. And I'd only known him for like a week. I hadn't known him that long. And he was just like, no, Ben, you need to start fasting now. You need to, tomorrow you're going to fast. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and they fast, their church would fast every Wednesday and Friday, all day. And this wasn't just like the really, the leaders or the spiritually intense people. It was everyone. They would all fast Wednesday and Friday. And so I started trying to learn from them. 
And then when I came back to America, to be honest, I completely lost it, fasting. And so if, uh, if you're hearing this and you're like, yeah, that's me, I don't fast very much, just know that I'm also speaking myself throughout the sermon. Uh, I'm trying to learn what it means to fast and hopefully incorporate that into my daily uh, walk and uh, journey with Christ. Uh, and also just a p- couple preliminary remarks. Many times we talk about fasting, and well, in a really broad sense. We can talk about fasting from our phones, from coffee, from sugar, uh, you name it. But we're going to be talking today about just fasting from food. And with that, I'm not saying that other types of fasting are invalid. That's not the point. Uh, that's just, we're just focusing more on fasting from food. And also, if you have health problems, if fasting from food would be something that would put you in a Uh, in an unhealthy state, please, please be wise and maybe don't fast or find, find another way to do that. Or if you've struggled with body images, image, uh, with your body image in the past or currently, that might also be something to take into consideration, the reasons for fasting and whether or not you can do it in a healthy way. If that's the case with you, try to find something else. Maybe it's God's calling you to fast from your phone or from sugar of some sort or whatever it looks like. I think it can be different for every person. And with that, let's look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 15. It's Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 15. So at this point in the story, Jesus has been, he's sort of a wandering, itinerant, uh, homeless person who's going around preaching the kingdom of God and getting in people's faces and healing people and casting out demons and preaching this radical way of life where he's calling people to love their enemies, to turn the other cheek. And he's causing quite the stir because he's backing it up by healing people. That, that's not something you see every day. And in fact, right before this story, he's in a, in a home and a paralyzed man uh, is brought to him and Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And everyone's like, whoa, whoa, whoa only God can do that. And Jesus is like, yeah. <laughs> and then he says, get up, you're healed. And then the man got up and was healed. And then right after that, <clears throat> Jesus is walking out of the city and he sees Matthew. And Matthew's a tax collector. And just a little background, tax collectors are, were hated back then. They're like the first century mafia. They, they made their living off extortions and just taking advantage of people and making people so indebted to them that they'd have to sell themselves and family into slavery. It, it, they're just not good people. And Jesus goes up to him, and this is what happens. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have, come, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. So in this story, Jesus goes up to his tax collector, who's not very well liked, and asks him to follow him and become his disciple, which in itself is so crazy. Then even crazier, Matthew drops everything and follows him. And then they have this feast. And right away, you see Jesus feasting with people and feasting with uh, those that everyone else, all the other Israelites or people around there would be like, you should not feast with them. They're bad people. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is doing. 
And then uh, the disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, and the Pharisees come up, and they're like, hey, why aren't you fasting? What's going on here? And that most likely there was a corporate fast going on at this time where they were fasting over the fact that they were under Roman oppression, that they were in an exile of sorts. They are fasting in response to that. And Jesus is like, uh, no, I, I shouldn't fast. We don't need to fast because I'm here. And he says, the wedding guests don't fast when the bridegroom is here. And the wedding, that phrase, wedding guests, literally in the Greek means uh, sons of the bridegroom. And it, it refers to those closest to the wedding party so the, or the, the couple getting married. It's like the bridal party, except probably more expansive than that. And these people were the ones most invested in this couple. They're ready. They're, they're there to celebrate. And in their culture, weddings didn't last like three hours or however long. Well, the ceremony is like 30 minutes, and then we have reception for a few hours. But in their culture, it went on for days, even a week at a time. And they would just fast. They were, sorry, they'd feast and celebrate and have a good time together. And Jesus is saying, you shouldn't be uh, mourning, which is interesting. He seems to associate fasting with mourning right here. He says, no, it's not time for mourning. It's a time of celebration. And we're going to explore this idea of mourning, um, fasting as a form of mourning. And first we're going to talk about fasting, and then we'll talk about feasting. And throughout it here, this is pretty much what, I'm, what we're going to talk about, is there's this concept that helps you interpret the New Testament and really the whole Bible, and it's called the already not yet kingdom of God. Actually, Greg mentioned it two weeks ago. And it's this idea that the kingdom of God has already arrived, but yet at the same time, it's not quite here. The kingdom of God has already arrived, yet at the same time, it's not quite here. And so the kingdom of God has already arrived, so we feast and celebrate. But then the kingdom of God is not yet quite here, so we fast and we mourn, and we long for the world to be made better and to be renewed. And throughout the Bible, uh, fasting can occur for a few different reasons, but predominantly, like a vast majority of the time, the Uh, fasting is a response to something. I think I always thought fasting was more of a, I need to, uh, I need a result, and so I fast. But really fasting is a response to, most of the time, a tragic situation that occurs. There's a couple situations uh, where people fast in response to the glory and majesty of God. For example, uh, Moses does on Mount Sinai. He doesn't eat or drink for 40 days, which is a supernatural fast because nobody can survive without water for 40 days. And the only two other people who do that are Elijah and Jesus. And most likely none of us will be doing that in our lives. Uh, So those are the rare ones. But then the other times, it's a response to a, a tragic situation or a grievous situation. They respond to it by abstaining from food and fasting. And sometimes, uh, and it's split typically into two categories. So you have a response to sin, then you have a response to just generally something that's really sad that happened. And in the first category, a response to um, sin, it can either be corporate, meaning as a group, as the body, or it can be personal. In the uh, daily life or the yearly life of the Israelites, they had this one day of the week, or one day of the year, sorry, called the Day of Atonement. And on this day, they had a sacrifice and a scapegoat that would go outside the camp that carried away their sins uh, in front of God. And on that day, they all fasted. It was a time of corporate fasting. But then there's also instances where people fast uh, due to their own personal sin. For example, David. One time, and just to clarify right up front, the Bible's not PG. <laughs> I think sometimes we want the Bible to be PG and we water down or whitewash some aspects of it. The Bible's very much R-rated. So in this story, David sees a woman and he rapes her. He rapes this woman and then he, she's pregnant. 
doesn't know what to do, and so he has her husband killed. And then he thinks he got away with it, but then obviously God saw it and is ticked off at David. And he sends Nathan, the prophet, and they call him out, and he's in all this trouble. And then uh, David responds by mourning and weeping in sackcloth and ashes. So he responds to his sin and by repenting and repenting by uh, fasting and weeping. Then there's also these times where people respond uh, to a, a tragic situation, something really sad that happened, and they fast. For example, <laughs> David, he's on the run, and King Saul's after him, trying to kill him, and it's going on for a long, long time. And then King Saul gets killed, and actually the Israelites lose this battle against the Philistines. So King Saul died, the, they, the Israelites lost the battle against the Philistines. David hears about it, and their response, they fast. David and all of his followers, they begin to fast and mourn together. Fast and mourn together. And then actually another time, there's this inter-Israel uh, war going on and between the 11 tribes of Israel and then the 12th tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, because they had committed a really a heinous crime. And they're really upset with the tribe of Benjamin, so they go to war, and tens and tens of thousands of people are killed. And what's their response? They fast. They embody their grief in their mourning by this act of fasting and abstaining from food. The question is, why do they fast like this? What, why is it that they feel the need to not eat whenever they're sad? And I think that uh, they view the body and what it means to be human slightly differently than us. And just to clarify, I actually think we're changing in our culture. But historically, we've had this separation between our spiritual life and our physical life. And in fact, we've labeled physicality as evil and then spirituality as good. Um, and we've made them separate. Whereas in their mindset, I think that it was all just one. There wasn't this uh, separation. And the best example of this is our view of a soul. Uh, in the Hebrew mindset, they didn't have this ghost in the machine. That's sort of how we've typically had it. We've had this understanding of a soul that's sort of like this ghost in the machine that is separate from our physical body and is lasting forever. Uh, but one, one of my favorite theologians says that in the Hebrew mindset, they didn't believe that uh, humans had a soul, but that humans were a soul. So humans are a soul, meaning a soul encompasses our entire existence. It's our entire being. That's what it means to have a soul. And with that, have you ever experienced a time where you've been super just sad or anxious and then you haven't been able to eat? I certainly have. I, I, when I was preparing for this message, it brought me back to a time a couple years ago. I was in Africa. I woke up in the morning and I had a text that one of my good friends had died of a drug overdose the day before. And I was just so just saddened by it. I couldn't believe it. And then 30 minutes later, I find out that another good friend of mine, who was my roommate in college for a while, that his parents got hit by a drunk driver and uh, the mother died and the father was in critical condition. So I woke up in the morning and then within 45 minutes, my world was just rocked. And, I, and then my friend called me and was weeping on the phone and sobbing. And he, he had ne I'd never actually seen him cry before. And he just was... Um, very, very sad, obviously, and I couldn't stop crying as well, and I couldn't eat for days. It took me days before I could eat again. I think that's because I was ex my body was naturally expressing what I was feeling, and we sometimes try to squelch that. We try to squelch that, but David's also experienced this. For example, in Psalm 35, uh, in Psalm 35, 
<clears throat> David's been chased by these enemies who he's not getting along with, and we can put Psalm 35 up on the screen. And he's trying to say that he still um, mourns for them and loves them despite what they're doing to him. So this is what he says. Yet when they were ill, I put on sackcloth and humbled myself with fasting. When my prayers returned to me unanswered, I went about mourning as though for my, for my friend or brother. I bowed my head in grief as though weeping for my mother. See, in this psalm, David views praying as a whole body activity. And we do this sometimes. There's some people, whenever in in worship, they're very excited about what God is doing, and so they raise their hands. They raise their hands as as an expression of, a physical expression of what they're feeling inside. Or some people get on their hands and knees. Or have you ever heard a, a really good song and you just can't help but start dancing and moving? I mean, it just, it goes inside and you can't help it but start moving. I, I'm not a very good dancer, but I experience that all the time. I just can't help but move and, and move to the rhythm or whatever. And I think that that's what David is expressing in this psalm. To him, his sadness was not yet fully bloomed until the body expressed it by fasting. David's assuming that to merely feel sadness is just not enough. That since we're physical creatures, it would just be odd uh, not to express his sorrow by, by not fasting. That, that's sort of foreign to him. Whenever you're sad, you fast. <laughs> that's just a natural response to them. See, fasting is a whole body response to a grievous, sacred moment. Fasting is a whole body response to a grievous, sacred moment. But then we also have to talk about the good things that are occurring, because we do have hope. We believe in the Messiah. We believe that the Holy Spirit is present and active in this world, that God is reconciling all things to himself. So how do we embody that reality? How do we embody that hope and that, that excitement? We feast. We feast. And so now we'll talk a little bit about feasting. In the very beginning, uh, God created humanity in his image, he created the whole world, created humanity, and he created us to partner with God by creating beauty to spread his goodness, his love throughout the whole universe. But then, unfortunately, we decided we wanted to continue doing that, but we wanted to define what is good and what is evil for ourselves. And so we, we sort of decided we didn't want God uh, to go forth with this creation project. And with that, uh, beforehand, there was this uh, God space and human space were one. So God was living and dwelling with his people. But then whenever we decided to define good and evil for ourselves, these two spaces became separated. And you have God's space over here and human space over here. And throughout the biblical narrative, there's all this overlap that's occurring, and most profoundly in, in Jesus Christ, right? I mean, that's God made flesh. That's human space invading, uh, sorry, God's space invading human space and walking and talking and living among us. But at the end, after Adam and Eve decided to define good and evil for themselves, there's this promise this promise of hope that there would come a time where there would be a snake crusher. This snake crusher would stomp on the head of the serpent, which represents evil, and would kill the serpent, but in turn, the snake or the, the Messiah would be killed by the serpent. And that, that hope is carried throughout the rest of the biblical narrative. And there's, uh, it, it's carried through all the prophets, through David, through Moses and Abraham. They're all longing for this time when the Messiah would come forth, would defeat evil, and God's space and human space would be one once more. And I think this is most fully expressed in Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. This is the prophet Isaiah expressing his longing for this moment when God will return to his people and the kingdom of God will be fully present here on earth. 
On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day, they will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Here we have um, Isaiah painting a picture of what it looks like for the kingdom of God to come back. And it's God with his people, and there's a lot of food, and there's celebration, and there's no more pain, there's no more tears, there's no more death. And now hopefully you can see why Jesus spent so much time going around and healing people, people who were uh, experiencing sorrow and grief. He was uh, entering, into with, entering into that with them. And then ultimately he was feasting with people. He spent a majority of his time at people's houses eating uh, with the people of God, with eating with the Israelites and the people who nobody else thought that God would deign to, to visit. See, God, or Jesus, was expressing with all of his actions that the kingdom of God has arrived. God is with his people on the mountain feasting, and there's celebration, there's hope, because everything they've been hoping for for centuries has finally arrived. The Messiah is here. And that's why feasting is viewed as um, the kingdom of God having arrived. Feasting is a way of embodying our hope, our longing, and our desire for Jesus to be present once more. Now with that, let's turn back to our passage in Matthew chapter 9. So Jesus says that while he's here, there shouldn't be any fasting. Jesus is like, no, there should only be feasting because God is here, the messianic banquet, that, that messianic banquet from Isaiah chapter 25, that's here, God is with his people, we're fasting, so, or sorry, we're feasting, so no time for fasting. But then he says something odd. He's like, but I'm going to have to be taken away and then there will be fasting. And what's fasting a sign of? Mourning. So he's like, yeah, right now we can feast, but there's going to come a time where we're going to have to fast. And it's really confusing because the biblical authors portray Jesus as the kingdom of God having arrived through Jesus. And actually they say that Jesus became king over the cosmos by his death, which Right there. I mean, Christianity is crazy. The fact that we believe in the king of everything becoming king and being enthroned by his own crucifixion and just a most shameful moment, and yet that's how he became king. But that's how they paint it. And then one of the promises of the kingdom of God is this idea that the Holy Spirit would be pulled out, poured out and that hearts that are made of stone would be turned into hearts of flesh and that people would be transformed into the image of God. And that's what happened on Pentecost because the Holy Spirit was poured out. And so we have this idea that the kingdom of God did arrive and it is still here. But then we look around and there's still death. There's still pain. There's still sorrow. Things are not as they're meant to be. God isn't always fully present. He sometimes he feels distant. How do we respond to that? I think as Christians, we should fast for two main reasons. We fast in response to the absence of Jesus. We fast because we desire and long for Jesus to come here, to return, to be present and active among us. And really, that's what Advent is all about. It's expressing our longing and our desire and our expectations. Then we also fast Uh, because we recognize that this world is not as God intended it to be. 
God doesn't intend for there to be pain. God doesn't want there to be suffering. God doesn't want there to be death. And we're really embodying a part of the Lord's Prayer, which Greg talked about a couple weeks ago. He talked about how uh, he challenged us to pray the Lord's Prayer a couple times every day. And one part of the Lord's Prayer says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think that fasting is embodying that. We're, we're fasting in response to the fact that we are experiencing tragic situations all around us. We're fasting in response to the fact that this world is not as it's meant to be. And so we're praying and fasting and saying, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We long for there to be no more tears, no more pain, no more death. And we enter into the grief that God feels for this entire universe. And whenever we enter into that grief that God is experiencing for us, it affects us deeply. And we long for it to affect us deeply. And whenever it affects us so deeply, we can't help but fast and abstain from food. It's a, it's a way of embodying our grief and our lament. I think sometimes we try to cover up pain. <clears throat> we try to inoculate it by uh, maybe eating a bunch whenever we're sad. I know I certainly do that. If I'm anxious or sad, my first response is, all right, got to go get some ice cream. I think what this is challenging us to do is actually sit in it and allow us to experience that grief for our own lives and for the lives of those around us. Sit in the pain for a period of time. I have a friend who's a clinical psychologist here in Seattle, and he works with first responders, and he sees a lot of pain and a lot of suffering. And he was just telling me a couple nights ago that he, uh, once a week, he sets aside a period of time where he grieves intentionally, where he has a certain playlist that he just lets it wash over him and just sits there and he allows himself to feel the pain that he'd been seeing and experiencing all week long. And I think that's, <clears throat> that's so healthy. And in fact, Psalm 42, which is a pretty well-known psalm, we can turn there, is a psalm that expresses this really, really well. That's in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. And remember, soul isn't the ghost of the machine. Soul is our, is our entire existence, our entire being. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. In this psalm, the, the psalmist is so upset by some situation that's occurring that they say that all they've been eating and drinking is their own tears. They are mourning and grieving, and that's, and that's been expressed by fasting. However, however at the very end, it talks about put your hope in God. It talks about how there is hope. The Messiah is here. And so we feast because we know that God is present. We know that Jesus conquered death when he was resurrected. We know that the Holy Spirit has been poured out and is active and present. We know that God is reconciling all things to himself. We know that everything is being made whole again. And so we feast, and <clears throat> to me, that's what communion is all about. Communion, the Lord's Supper that we practice every Sunday with the bread and the juice, uh, is an act of remembering what Jesus did. But we also proclaim what he's going to do and is doing in this world. For example, in the letter to the church in Corinth, Paul says this when he's talking about um, communion. He says, for whenever, <clears throat> for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
talking about communion, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Once again, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, communion is also a celebration. It's a way of embodying that hope and that longing for the coming of Jesus. And I think as Christians, we need to have this regular rhythm of feasting and fasting. We need to be people who don't close ourselves off to the world and to the suffering around us, but enter into it and express it by fasting. We recognize that war, famine, oppression, racism, sexism, drought, all the ecological problems happening in our world, all this is not God's desire. And we look at that and we say, this is, this is so sad and so I have to enter into that and I fast on behalf of this world. But then once again, we embody our hope by feasting. We celebrate because it's so exciting that the Messiah is born. The Messiah is here. At this point, I'd like to invite the worship team and prayer team up. They're going to play instrumentally for a bit. And during that time, my challenge to you is to consider fasting. Seriously consider fasting in the next, uh, next couple weeks or, or, week in, or less than a week actually, or a little over a week before Christmas. Maybe consider fasting one day. Consider setting aside one day or maybe one meal this week where you enter into that grief, where you embody that lament in that morning for this world. And as a church, we can enter into that. I, I intend to do this. I've not been great at fasting, and I really want to make this a regular rhythm in my life. But then on Christmas Day, we feast. Because <laughs> Christmas is all about hope incarnating into our existence. It's about hope being born into this world. So after this time of reflection, the worship team is going to lead us in a song called Come Lord Jesus. It's one of my favorite songs lately. Come Lord Jesus. And for those who are listening online or on podcasts later, it's Come Lord Jesus by the band called The Homestead. The Homestead. Come Lord Jesus. And I want, this, want us to make this our prayer. Let's sing it out and proclaim it over ourselves, over our neighbor, over our city, over our nation, and over this whole universe. Let's sing and praise God and send out our prayers to him as we long and expect and desire for all things to be made new. Let's embody that hope with our singing, with our feasting, and with our fasting. God, thank you that you are here. Thank you that you grieve over the way things are. Yet also thank you that you became human, that you conquered sin and death, that you are present and active, that you love all people, and that you are active in reconciling all things to yourself. God, I pray that we would be able to sit in that tension that we would be able to celebrate and we'd also be able to mourn. Be with us during this Advent season as we long and expect for you to come. In Jesus' name, amen.